Forensic Science The application of science to criminal and civil laws, mainly on the criminal side, during criminal investigation as governed by the legal standards of admissible evidence and criminal procedure. A field made famous by popular television shows like CSI. A field populated by imperfect humans with questions working to find answers on a microscopic level. It's a world where science collides with crime. Most of us are not trained as forensic investigators, and I couldn't begin to understand the complexities behind the science. Yet, thanks to crime shows like NCIS and CSI, the producers draw us in using strong characters, great storylines, and most importantly, forensic science. We see complex crimes like homicides be solved in less than 30 minutes, but does this really happen? I mean, these shows have to be telling at least the partial truth, right? Today, we are taking a look at a criminal phenomena called the CSI effect and how it meshes with the fictional world of reality TV with the factual world of forensic science. Welcome to Lost and Found. We don't know anything about anything, actually, in this case. There's very little that is actually known about the Jody Hoosentritt disappearance. Oh, the flowers and the teddy bears and the love notes didn't work. So I go to the next level and I'm going to start to threaten them, hurt them, and that will make them do what I want them to. I just feel like it's part of the job. You need to know that there are a lot of people who know you and you have to be on your guard. From B-Runner Studios and KBVU 97.5 The Edge. Because of what they see on TV and everything gets solved in an hour, they have unrealistic expectations of what an actual person, an actual life-threat investigator can do. This is Lost and Found. I'm your host, Tyler Bruner. Crime shows are one of the most popular genres of television shows ever. At one point in time, CSI was the most watched television show in the world with 63 million viewers, according to the Huffington Post. That's a lot of people. For reasons we cannot understand, we seem drawn to the shows that feature crime, murder, and forensic science. But there is a reason behind that. Dr. Scott A. Bond, a criminology professor, television news commentator, and public speaker, did some digging into why we are so drawn to crime shows. And he found that the actions of a serial killer may be horrible to behold, but much of the public simply cannot look away due to the thrill of the spectacle. Like witnessing a car wreck, it's a horrible scene to see, but we have a difficult time looking away from something so unusual in our daily lives. This explanation can also provide commentary as to why we are so fascinated with cold cases, ones like the Jody Hoosentrup case. With little forensic evidence, no body, and national attention, it's easy to be sucked into this case and start to form questions and opinions about what could have happened. 
This is where the initial idea for this episode stemmed from. Judy's case had little forensic and physical evidence. So if this case happened today and someone was convicted for the crime, would the lack of physical evidence be enough for a jury to make a guilty verdict? Well, we run into a situation. With shows like CSI that glorify the field of forensic science, we begin to blur the lines between reality and fiction, right? According to federal judge Donald E. Shelton, jurors now expect courts to have a DNA test for just about every case. They expect courts to have the most advanced technology possible, and they expect it to look like it does on television. This is what we call the CSI effect. My stuff all sort of fits together as well. So, like um, the studies that I, the studies that I've run on the CSI effect, sort of look at how the CSI uh, exposure can change how people uh, interpret forensic evidence. So, for example, like physical evidence, like fingerprints and stuff like that. Um, people tend to think that that kind of evidence is more credible if they've been exposed to a lot of crime-related media. Um, because in the crime-related media, it's pretty much always sold as being 100% reliable and credible, um, whereas in the real world, it's messier than that. Um, so that's sort of what I, the angle that I take when I'm looking at the CSI effect, is like, how does what they've learned from these crime shows in, influence what they think about evidence and what they think about the criminal justice system, and then how does that feed into their guilt judgment? Friends, this is Adele Quigley McBride. So my name is Adele Quigley McBride. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at Iowa State University, and I am working on getting my PhD in psychology and law, um, focusing on forensic evidence and eyewitness misidentification. Adele was someone I was introduced to as someone who could provide us with some information about the CSI effect. Adele is currently a PhD candidate and researcher and has recently received a degree in law. There are a lot of aspects to cover with the CSI effect. So let's start out with a simple beginning. What even is the CSI effect? Right, so the CSI effect is um, a kind of media effect. So media effects are more general. Um, when people are exposed to a lot of information through the media, they tend to learn from that information, whether they mean to or not. So people who are avid fans of CSI or any other kind of crime show that tries to depict cases as being realistic when they potentially aren't, um, people will learn from those uh, exposure to those kinds of shows. And those shows will typically frame um, forensic scientists and forensic evidence as being very credible um, as cases um, cases will be very uh, sort of clear-cut. There will be lots of physical evidence available in every case. And the police, as long as they work hard enough, will always solve the case. Um, and that's the kind of thing that they learn from these shows. But in reality, that's not what happens. Cases are really messy. The police have a really difficult job. And forensic scientists are doing their best with really ambiguous and terrible evidence often. Um, so when jurors have been exposed to a lot of shows like CSI, they're expecting a certain kind of evidence in court before they 
will make a conviction or before they'll exonerate somebody. And um, oftentimes, the the evidence doesn't meet up with their expectations. So that's what um, typically is referred to as the CSI effect, um, is that they just have different expectations about what will unfold in a trial and what kind of evidence will be presented to them um, and what they would expect to see before they would say someone is guilty or not guilty. This aspect of the CSI effect can be worrisome. Those who watch CSI, like shows, are exposed to a brand new world full of technology and science that really doesn't exist. N.J. Switzer and Michael J. Sachs, authors of the article The CSI Effect, popular fiction about forensic science affects the public's expectations about real-life forensic science, found that around 40% of the science on CSI is indeed fake. This brews up a frightening storm. Jurors become curious about the world of forensic science and quench their crime thirst by watching shows that are fictitious. But what is completely true is the advancements we have made in the world of forensic science. Mark Prosser, whom we talked with in episode one, discussed these changes in forensic science from the past 30 years and how it has continued to grow in the past few years. Well, I think you touched on several topics that have uh, caused investigations and, and how they're conducted to evolve, and it's, it's science and technology. Uh, and with that, in, in the latter years, the, the use of social media and doing investigations uh, via, via that. But um, when I started, um, you know, we put shoe prints together and, and fingerprints and, and tried to match that. And even in the time of my career, um, the the technology on fingerprints has, has greatly expanded. When, when I first started, uh, if you had a suspect or you were looking at potential suspects and you had fingerprints, you would send the fingerprints to the, to the crime lab and then you were allowed to send 10 potential suspects and that's all they, they would compare them to. Uh, if, if those individuals in fact had fingerprints on file or you had their fingerprints. Uh, and so from that came automated fingerprinting where computers analyze fingerprints now. And so if, if fingerprints are anywhere in the database and you submit a good set, it will track and, and connect those. Mm-hmm. But what you have to remember with fingerprints, just like DNA, is some, that it's somewhere it has to be in a database. Mm-hmm. So if you've never been arrested, you've never been fingerprinted, or your DNA is not in a database, you're not going to get connected to any case, even today. Um, because I don't have your DNA or I may not have your fingerprints. Mm -hmm. If you were in the military, if you had previous arrests, um, teachers, you know, anybody who goes through security clearances are are fingerprinted, that sort of thing, that all goes part of a database. But if you're not part of the criminal justice system or you're not in a field that runs background checks or something that requires fingerprints, you're not even in the fingerprint system today. And so DNA is the same way. But nevertheless, it's all automated. It's all very much more scientific. Uh, even in the evolution of DNA, the tests they can run today are so much more advanced than when DNA first started. They could only check for certain things. Now they can check it many different ways. They can also um, get DNA, extract DNA from many different substances than when that science first started. So as everything evolves and becomes more efficient, mm-hmm. That has caused investigations uh, uh, and investigative techniques to become more efficient. I also spoke with a professor who has the self-title of crime nerd. His name is Dr. Richard Reiner. 
I'm Dr. Richard Reiner, and I'm an assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice. I was in law enforcement for almost exactly 10 years. Um, during that time, I was a training sergeant, um, also a shift sergeant, and academy instructor, and field training officer. Dr. Reiner was introduced to me when I took his criminology class a semester ago, and I knew he would have some first-hand experience and knowledge on the processes of law enforcement and forensic science. Dr. Reiner has looked into the phenomena of the CSI effect and came up with a conclusion of how it plays a role in the legal process. I don't think you see it as a positive or a negative. I see it as a part of an evolution. Mm -hmm. um, one thing in... Uh, just to, to draw a correlation from my experience in law enforcement, there was one particular uh, defense attorney who specialized in um, drunk driving trials. Um, and when he first started focusing on that, he was winning a ton because police officers were not uh, adhering to the strict instructions and they were not, you know, any little mistake in the documentation that they would get hammered on the stand. All it did is it made police officers in that area do their job better. And so they just, they had to evolve to the changing conditions. And that's kind of what's going on with jury selection. We're just evolving to kind of meet the challenges of the conditions that exist. So I don't see it necessarily as a positive or a negative thing. It's just, it's just part of the process. Something at 10 years from now, something else will pop up and we'll have to evolve to, to meet that challenge as well. With forensic technology, uh, one thing I've been doing a lot of a lot of research, um, we're starting to see some pushback um, with regard to who gets to be um, recognized by the court as an expert witness. Um, it, the, the standards were, I don't want to say loose, but they were not standard. <laughs> the standards weren't standard. There was no uniform, that's what I'm trying to say, there was no uniform standard by which someone got to be recognized by the court, and that has somewhat changed. The credentialing level is greatly increased. Attorneys are getting more savvy with regard to the language that experts use on the stand. Uh, one thing that, um, in fact, I was just reading about this last week, uh, when you have a forensic expert and they, they find a hair uh, at a sample, or a hair sample, uh, without the root, so DNA is not going to be um, a factor with regard to how probative this hair is going to be, uh, but they have a hair, and then they take a hair from the suspect and say, oh, it's a match. You can't say that. Mm -hmm. Without DNA, you cannot say that. You can say this hair is similar to this one, or this hair is right. consistent with this one. And so attorneys have gotten more savvy with regard to the language that uh, experts use on the stand. Uh, as far as major advances in technology, now with regard to uh, computer forensics, absolutely. And that's kind of out of my depth. But, <laughs> uh, but with regard to like DNA evidence and matching fibers and, you know, again, the term matching is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so attorneys have gotten, like I said, they've gotten better at kind of really not, I don't want to say forcing, but re kind of requiring these forensic experts to be very clear with regard to their language. The biggest issue that the CSI effect brings to the surface 
is its potential power inside jury trials. Researchers are still trying to figure out whether those who watch CSI-related shows have the power and have a large enough sample size to overlook certain evidence in the courtroom or take the evidence as the truth with no critical analysis. Donald E. Shelton, through his research, found that although CSI viewers had higher expectations for scientific evidence than non-CSI viewers, these expectations had little, if any, bearing on the respondent's propensity to convict. When we look back on Jody's case, this effect could lead to a conviction if it is found to have a significant effect on the jury's decision-making. The jury could see the now properly tested evidence, use their newly acquired knowledge from CSI shows, and make a decision whether or not to convict the person in front of them. That's if this case happened today. But as Adele will let you in on, the CSI effect has been studied for years, and the same conclusion comes back. It has little to no effect. The, the literature seems to suggest that there is some reason to believe that people who watch a lot of crime shows do have different expectations about what they would see in trial, but there isn't a lot of conclusive evidence about what exactly that causes um, to happen. So there's been a lot of uh, cross-sectional studies, which means that they've just done surveys of people um, and asked them how often they watch crime shows and then assessed a bunch of different things about their attitudes towards evidence and um, the criminal justice system and so on. And so um, we don't know much about the causal direction or what exactly is happening, but what we do know is that they do think differently about the criminal justice system. They do tend to be more punitive than people who don't watch as many crime shows. Um, and they also tend to uh, see forensic evidence as being more credible. Which, however that happens to play out in a court case will be different for each individual trial. Um, and lawyers are the ones that started, I guess, this issue um, and started the research in this area because they claimed that they were losing cases because of the CSI effect. And then that sparked research in the area. But actually, it looks like the, you know, the procedures and stuff that are in place already in the legal system are fairly good at removing these biases um, in the long run. So have a jury of 12 people usually, and if two of them happen to be avid CSI watchers, they might tell other people in the jury that they think the evidence is very credible or that they expect more evidence. But they still have to convince the entire jury of that, and they still have to follow the, the law that they've been given. So even though it certainly does affect people on an individual level, the likelihood of it affecting an entire jury is small. Um, so I think although judges maybe should be aware of this, particularly in cases where um, it seems that... Uh, the lack of forensic evidence or the presence of forensic evidence seems to be the turning point in a particular case. They maybe should be aware of this issue then, but otherwise I think the system should be trusted to deal with that in most cases, um, simply because of 
how it is set up. It isn't down to just one person to decide guilt or innocence. And there's a reason for that. Um, it's a very interesting effect to look at and to study how people learn from these kinds of shows. But I don't know that it would affect cases um, because of this sort of group decision that needs to happen. This is where the CSI effect loses a lot of credibility, even though those who watch CSI-type shows are more likely to be more critical of DNA evidence in court, there's little evidence to prove that this has any effect on the dynamics of a criminal case. Switzer and Sachs put this confusion to the forefront. They found that jurors who watch CSI expect a lot of crime scene evidence in order for a guilty verdict to be reached. They also believe that forensic evidence shown in court is less impressive compared to that shown on television. This, in most cases, is a great thing. Jurors are more critical of the evidence shown in court and are not easily persuaded by simple evidence. On the other spectrum, CSI could be tricking their audience to think forensic science is so accurate and effective that jurors could be quick to accept any sort of forensic evidence that is shown in court. Makes your head spin, right? Adele brought up this conclusion in our discussion and how really we don't know the true potency of the CSI effect. Yeah, so um, the literature is kind of mixed because it's a really difficult question to look at. Um, when you're trying to look at how people evaluate particular cases, there's lots of things that can feed into someone's judgment of guilt or not, and it's not necessarily just evidence. So I think that the literature has suffered in that way because um, it's not easy to pin down exactly what people are honing in on in any particular case if you're trying to be you know, ecologically valid and make it seem like a real court case. You can't just have it be clean and neat. Um, so a lot of the literature is a little bit mixed or they have null effects, but the general consensus is that it does make a difference. It's just that difference is um, not easy to pin down. But what it does do is it does mean that people interpret the information they receive as a juror slightly differently than people who don't have exposure to that kind of information. As disappointing as it might sound, the CSI effect has yet to prove dangerous or helpful in the courtroom. Switzer and Sachs highlighted what Professor Tom R. Tyler said about the CSI effect, where he said, quote, consistent with empirical findings in other areas of legal psychology and accords with the institutions of participants in the trial process, no existing empirical research shows that it actually occurs. In other simpler words, there really is no research that shows the CSI effect holds any weight in the courtroom or that it even happens in the first place. Switzer and Sachs did find some substantial evidence, finding that those who regularly watch CSI-like shows expect better science than they are often presented in courts. Yet, they found their results pointed towards the idea of the CSI effect not really affecting verdicts in the long run. Continued research on this topic might one day prove one way or the other, but until then, we can only make educated guesses about the CSI effect. So why bring this issue up in the first place if it hasn't been proven to happen in the courtroom? Well, 
I did so because it affects a different part of the legal process, and some people are fed up with it. CSI and shows like it show fake technology and glorify the supposed accuracy of forensic science, but in reality, it's more blinding than revealing. Yeah, and it's, well, but it's, it's, it's news, it's twisted. It's been turned into breaking news. It's been turned into, they've made it a story. They've used the right words to get people's attention to go, oh my gosh, you know, and, and I think, and, and, I, and I've thought this for years, I really think 9-11 changed how we get news and what news we get and how we get our news and what news we get because of that, because of that major catastrophe, that world-altering event that happened has changed everything after that as far as information goes. And I know when that went on, I was on information overload when that happened. I mean, I could not take my eyes off the TV. We still to this day have strolling shit across the bottom of the street. Why do we need that anymore? There, there's no emergency. There's no major catastrophe. Why are we still running this stupid banner across the bottom about whatever you're going to talk about in three minutes? You know, or this red banner that says, you know, I watch the nightly news every single night. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. You know, everything's Everything's a catastrophe. Everything's, oh my God, everything's on fire. Oh my God, there's mudslides, you know? And so when, so when they come to me, they expect those same things. They expect everything to just be better and go be guaranteed to get the pictures that they want for this or that or another thing. And, and it just doesn't happen. There is, there is no guarantee. And unfortunately, there have been cases that I have not been able to successfully get what they needed to move forward in whatever it was that they were doing. Friends, this is Melissa Rulo. She's a private investigator in Iowa City and has years of experience under her belt. As you can tell, she is very passionate about the work she is doing and will continue to do. Her motivation for becoming a private investigator is interesting to say the least. Um, I was married before in a toxic relationship and I actually honed my skills as being a private investigator in being married to the person that I was married to. And, and that pretty much sums up what I, how I learned to be this. So once I decided that, that that was something that could actually be a career path for me, I, uh, found there actually happened to be a PI agency in Iowa City being run by local men who who I have known, my, my father knew on and on, they're local. And I told him I wanted to do this and he said that he wouldn't even consider me unless I had a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Or, or I, I don't know, I'm not sure if he actually said bachelor's degree or if he just said degree in criminal justice. So I was not discouraged. I did exactly what that man said, and I went across the street, and I applied at the community college here in town, and I got my um, associate's degree in criminal justice 
from a two-year program. So, so I went to school, I got my degree, and I walked right back into his office and I said, okay, I have my bachelor's degree, I want a job, and he did. I talked with her about her frustrations being a private investigator. And the one issue that pushes her past her limits was those who watch CSI shows and expect perfection from her. It's the, the biggest part that we have to deal with as an investigator and client is they, one, expect everything. Two, they expect a guarantee. Three, they expect there to be excellent pictures and or video. Um, four, it's only going to cost them a little bit of money and it's going to be done in two days. Because of what they see on TV and everything gets solved in an hour, they have unrealistic expectations of what an actual person, an actual licensed private investigator can do. Out, oh, way, way out over thought that that can happen. And, and that's, and that's frustrating. You know, and, 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 you know, you really have to watch your clients. You have to learn what kind of client you have. And you have to handle that client in a certain way. You know, it's, it, you know, there's some clients you can't tell them anything until the end. Because they'll, they'll run their mouth to somebody and it'll blow the whole thing. And then there's some that can work right along with me. They can help set things up for me. They can help tell me when somebody's going to be somewhere. You know, I have, I have confidential informants all over town. Um, to help me do what I do. To back up Melissa's frustration, Adele brought up what exactly CSI gets wrong and what the reality is for those who work in forensic science. Right, so I think that probably the biggest, um, the biggest thing that CSI type programs give misconceptions about is um, forensic evidence. So forensic evidence is very useful um, and there are certain types of techniques that are very reliable. Um, DNA is one. DNA, DNA is very reliable most of the time and is uh, was created by scientists. So it's definitely got a lot more safeguards than in other, other kinds of forensic techniques. But the CSI programs show every kind of forensic technique as being something that could distinguish between one person versus everyone else in the world. So, um, and that's not necessarily the case. So what they say is like, even if it's a fiber or a shoe print or a tire track, um, these CSI programs often will frame it like, well, there's no way that this particular tire could have come from anybody else except this person. And in reality, there's no way to do that unless they had a very unique car that nobody else owned in the world. Um, you know, so what these programs are, I guess, teaching that is most dangerous is that forensic techniques are something that is, should be seen as fact. When they, when an expert examiner presents something in court, that should be seen as 100% true and shouldn't be questioned. Whereas, in fact, they're just humans, and they're likely to make errors. Um, they might be rare because they are experts, so they are very good at their jobs. But um, even something like DNA is not completely 100% correct all of the time. Um, so jurors who have watched a lot of CSI programs 
they will question forensic evidence less than um, people who don't, and they will see it as being evidence of guilt, even when it's something that isn't necessarily able to exclude everybody else from the suspect list. Um, I guess it would just be to remember that forensic analysts are just ordinary people. Um, they're ordinary people that have a really, a really difficult job that can sometimes have quite extraordinary consequences, though. So they are likely to make errors, though they are supposed to be rare most of the time. So most uh, forensic techniques are actually quite accurate, like fingerprinting. DNA and so on. That doesn't mean that they're completely incapable of making errors though, and that's what I think people should remember. Like anybody, they can make errors, um, and their errors can be compounded by the kind of evidence they get. So often, people don't go walking around crime scenes leaving perfect fingerprints. Um, that would be like, like really nice if they did, but um, typically what they have is a partial print or a smudged print or something like that. And they're doing their very best with that evidence, and they might sound very certain when they're talking about that evidence, but I think the public should just remember that they're still just human, and so, you know, a certain amount of healthy skepticism is uh, advised whenever looking at any kind of forensic evidence. Even though the CSI effect doesn't have enough evidence to prove it to be an issue in the courtroom, it does show significant power outside in daily life. Some choose to believe these crimes can be solved in a few days and demand there be certain kinds of evidence before they can make a decision. While this critical mindset is a great thing to see, it also starts to mesh together fiction with real life science. But is it wrong to enjoy CSI? Of course not. It's fully reasonable to enjoy a show such as CSI. But we need to be mindful of what CSI touts to be real and true might not be the truth in reality. Nonetheless, forensic science will continue to advance and evolve, and so will shows like CSI. And as long as people demand to see these type of reality TV shows, they will continue to make millions of the criminal-intrigued public. And the public will continue to believe these white lies. Thank you all for listening and enjoying episode two of Lost and Found. As per usual, the sources used in this episode will be found in the description of this episode. This episode took quite a while to edit and produce, and I apologize for that. Episode 3 will take much less time to produce and will be out soon. Make sure you follow the podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms and rate it 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. My name is Tyler Bruner, and stay tuned. There is much more to come. <laughs>